All right, well, will you please stand and turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation 13. This will be our New Testament reading. In uh, adult Sunday school, we've been talking a lot recently about the, the dragon and the beast of Revelation. Well, we're going to read the, the beast chapter from Revelation 13, or at least the first 10 verses. Um, what we're going to see in our sermon text tonight is, is, an ex- is an example of the beast in action within Israel in the kingship of Gideon's son, Abimelech. So, um, Revelation 13, verses 1 through 10, and we'll turn to Judges 9. Um, let's pray before we read. Our Father in heaven, please open our eyes so that we may behold the wonderful things contained in your word. Please open my lips to declare your praise, and may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Revelation 13, starting at verse 1. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Amen. Let's turn to Judges 9. Verses 1 through 21. Now Abimelech, the son of Jeroboam, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, Say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, Which is better for you, that all seventy of the sons of Jeroboam rule over you, or that one rule over you? Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh, And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, He is our brother. And they gave him seventy pieces of silver out of the house of Baal-berith, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers, uh, the the sons of Jeroboam, seventy men, on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jeroboam, was left, 
for he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together, and all Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. When it was told to Jotham, he went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim and cried aloud and said to them, Listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. The trees once went out to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, Reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, Shall I leave my abundance, by which gods and men are honored, and go hold sway over the trees? And the trees said to the fig tree, You come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go hold sway over the trees? And the trees said to the vine, You come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, Shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go hold sway over the trees? Then all the trees said to the bramble, You come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, If in good faith you are anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Now, therefore, if you acted in good faith and integrity when you made Abimelech king, and if you have dealt well with Jeroboam and his house and have done to him as his deeds deserved, for my father fought for you and risked his life and delivered you from the hand of Midian, and you have risen up against my father's house this day and have killed his sons, 70 men on one stone, and have made Abimelech, the son of his female servant, king over the leaders of Shechem, because he is your relative. If then you have acted in good faith and integrity with Jeroboam and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech, and let him also rejoice in you. But if not... Let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo. And let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. And Jotham ran away and fled and went to Beer and lived there because of Abimelech, his brother. Amen. You may be seated. A history teacher I once had um, delighted in asking the trick question, who was the first president of the United States? And of course, anybody would answer George Washington. But of course, he would say, not George Washington. It was Peyton Randolph. Not to be confused with Peyton Manning. Uh, Peyton Randolph, as everyone knows, was the first president of the Continental Congress. So George, George Washington was the first president uh, under the current Constitution, but there were 14 different presidents of the Continental Congress before he took office in 1789. Now, I always thought that was a little bit unfair, because when you ask who the first president was, everybody knows what you mean by that. And uh, being president of the Continental Congress was a pretty different kind of job than being president of the United States, but... It was a fun little gag, I guess, and a different way to remember who uh, 
Peyton Randolph was. Anyway, if I were to ask you who was the first king of Israel, you would probably say Saul. In fact, I hope you would say Saul. Um, But if I was feeling ornery, I might say, no, it wasn't Saul. Everyone knows it was Abimelech. But if I said that, would I be right? Would I be right? And the answer is, well, sort of, but not really. Verse 6 says they made Abimelech king. Okay, but who made Abimelech king? And who was he king over? And how long did his reign actually last? And did he have any successor on his so-called throne? And what really is the point of having this history of Abimelech in the middle of a book of Judges anyway? Those are the kinds of questions we want to ask as we evaluate this um, pretty unusual and very, very gloomy history, uh, which we're going to begin doing tonight in three parts. First one will be a murderous monarch, verses 1 through 6. Second, a forest fable, verses 7 to 15. And third, a coming collapse, verses 16 to 21. So a murderous monarch, a forest fable, and a coming collapse. All right, so last time we looked at the end of the life of Gideon um, and how after the victory against Midian, the people offer to make him king, uh, but he refuses. He says, no, the Lord is your king. I'm not going to be your king. However, we went on to see uh, how he, he proceeded to act in all kinds of ways that Deuteronomy 17 says a future king of Israel must never act particularly in accumulating gold and accumulating wives. Um, And in addition to that, he also began, remember, to usurp the office of priest by making an ephod for himself. And then he set that ephod up in his hometown where the people began actually to worship it. And so he led Israel back into idolatry, which is where they started at the beginning of his judgeship. That idolatry was the cause of the Midianite oppression in the first place, Um, And then to cap it all off, not only did uh, Gideon have 70 sons by many different wives, like a king was not supposed to do, but one of those sons, born uh, by a woman of Shechem, he had the nerve to give a name which means, my father is king. So much for I will not be king and my son will not be king over you. That, of course, was Abimelech. Now, chapter 9, verse 1. Now Abimelech, the son of Jeroboam, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, Say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all 70 of the sons of Jeroboam rule over you, or that one rule over you. Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. And whatever scruples Gideon might have had about accepting that title as king, Abimelech certainly did not share them. Rather, here he is uh, beginning these political machinations to seize the kingship for himself by force. And he starts with his family members. He convinces them to talk to the leaders of the city. And he, uh, say he puts together a political action, action committee and sends out a fundraising email and manages to rake in 70 pieces of silver. He didn't really send a fundraising email. I made that part up, but you get the idea. He's gathering resources 
as politicians do, to try to gain power, build a coalition to get him into power. And it's very significant, as it is in our own politics, to follow the money trail and look, where does that money come from? Well, the money comes from the house of Baal Bereath. The house of Baal Bereath. Gideon has barely come to room temperature, and already the people of Israel have started to worship Baal again. The false god they were worshiping when the Midianites started oppressing them in the first place. Remember verse 33 of the previous chapter. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel uh, turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Bereath their god. The people of Israel did not remember the Lord their god. Baal Bereath, Baal of the covenant. Bereath is the Hebrew word for covenant, or berit. Um, so what a, what a bitter twist it is. When Israel is supposed to be in covenant with the Lord alone, for them now to be in covenant with Baal. Remember, Gideon's first action of obedience as a leader was to destroy the altar of Baal from his hometown. That's how he got the nickname Jeroboam, right? Let Baal contend against him if Baal is such a great god. Why don't you let him fight for himself against Gideon? But Abimelech is not contending against Baal like his father did. After all, Baal is his biggest political donor. That 70 pieces of silver turns out to be just enough to hire a gang of thugs to follow him around. And with that gang, Abimelech marches immediately from Shechem to Ophrah, where his brothers are. Uh, These worthless and reckless fellows he hires, that should remind us of some other pretty unsavory incidents in the history of Israel's kings later. Uh, You might think, for example, of the men that Jezebel recruits for Ahab to make false accusations against Naboth so he can kill him and seize his vineyard. Uh, You can think about the men who provide the muscle behind Jeroboam's rebellion against Solomon's son, Rehoboam. 2 Chronicles 13, they're described using the same word. They're described as worthless. And there at Ophrah, Abimelech commits an atrocity uh, which also has its echoes later in the history of the kings. Athaliah, uh, one of the most infamous monarchs in 2 Kings, 2 Kings 11. She's the queen mother, but when her son dies, she destroys the entire royal family so that she can be the one to succeed her son on the throne. Um, and interestingly, in that case too, just one survives. That's the baby boy, Joash. Athaliah, by the way, was also a Baal worshiper, close relative of Ahab. So there's a a connection there between these two uh, massacres. It also makes me think of Saul's massacre of the priests at Nob. And and, um, somewhere in the back of our minds then, as we think across the unfolding revelation of the Bible, we would not be far off to have in the back of our minds that other massacre by King Herod of the children of Bethlehem, when on that occasion too, one escaped the infant Lord Jesus with his parents. One commentary, Barry Webb, notes that um, we we shouldn't miss in verse 5 that Abimelech killed his brothers, all it says, on one stone. Why is that important? Well, 
um, to begin with, it, it highlights the brutality, the ruthlessness of of Imlek's violence, just these systematic executions of all these men. Um, but it's also an, a very important point of literary connection within the, the telling of this history and the events, really, of this history. Verse 5 finds a counterpart all the way down, if I've turned the page, in verse 53. Verse 53, where it says, A certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Sorry, spoiler alert. It's too late now. But Abimelech is dealt that mortal blow with what? With one stone. More on that next time when we get to the end of Abimelech's story. Okay. Well, for now, we can just wrap up this first section, verses 1 through 6, by seeing that <clears throat> after he massacres all of his half-brothers, Abimelech is crowned king then by whom? By the leaders of Shechem. Now, it's important to note here that Abimelech is not at this point uh, somehow king over the entire nation of Israel, is he? This is not all the 12 tribes coming together to make Abimelech king. Uh, one commentator, in, in fact, kind of heads this section, just the king of Shechem. This is why I was hinting earlier that it not only would be pretty pedantic, but it actually wouldn't be accurate to insist, oh, no, you've got it wrong. It wasn't Saul. Abimelech was the first king of Israel because he doesn't really become king of Israel here, right? He becomes king over this little group of Israelites, the Shechemites. And yet, there's a reason that he's get, this is given such a high profile in Judges. There's another sense in which Abimelech is the first king in Israel, okay? He serves this bigger purpose in Judges. Yes, his, his authority never became very widespread. And yet he symbolizes a principle that's very relevant for all of Israel and for all of her later monarchs who are going to reign over the whole nation. He symbolizes the kind of king that Israel should be terrified of having, both practically, politically, and spiritually. This is the kind of king that the surrounding Canaanite cities had in spades. The kind of king, unfortunately, that Israel all too often did, did end up having later in her history. And the kind of king whose reign would ultimately self-destruct with very bitter consequences um, for the people that he had previously led in rebellion against the Lord. And that's the direction that we're starting to head in in verse 7, as we come to the defiant speech of Jotham, the last surviving brother who had managed to escape. And now he, he, uh, Jotham climbs up on Mount Gerizim, which is right there near Shechem, and he has this uh, earful for the men who have just crowned Abimelech. Listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. And so he begins here what commentators like to refer to as a fable. A fable is kind of like a parable it's uh, kind of like an allegory, although it's not either really either one of those things. It's it's its own separate literary form. Um, here's a dictionary definition. Oxford English Dictionary defines a fable like this: A fable is a short story devised to convey some useful lesson, especially one in which animals or inanimate things, plants, trees, are the speakers or actors. Okay. Um, and you know this, of course, from Aesop's fables, 
or Aesop, uh, the tortoise and the hare, the lion and the mouse, and so on, a couple of those famous ones. Um, Well, here we have Jotham's fable of the trees and their search for somebody, somebody, anybody who will take this job of being our king. The trees once went out to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, Shall I leave my abundance by which gods and men are honored and go hold sway over the trees? We're being reminded here that Abimelech is not the first person to be offered the job. Israel tried to get Gideon to do it, but he would not take them up on it. And so they have turned to Abimelech, a lesser son completely misappropriate um, Tolkien's description of King Theoden, a lesser son of a greater sire. This is Jotham's point. He's, He's basically saying, okay, let me get this straight. You couldn't get my father to be king over you, and so you've become so desperate to get a king that you have chosen this worthless, murderous man, my brother, to be your king instead. Why? Because you just had to have a king, didn't you? You just had to. An olive tree, a fig tree, a grapevine, all of these are examples of, of plants that um, are beautiful. They're useful. They have some purpose. They bear fruits that are a blessing to human beings. They're gifts from God to, to bless people. But a bramble, what does a bramble do for anyone? What does that produce? It's a, it's a weed. In the context of Jotham's fable, it, it claims, you know, take refuge in my shade. What kind of shade does a bramble have to offer? But there is one part of the parable where the bramble will make good. It's able to produce fire. Not in real life, of course. This, there's a fantasy element to this fable. It's, it's purposefully... You're supposed to think, oh, brambles can't produce fire, although think of a dry bramble catching fire very, very easily. The bramble said to the trees, if in good faith you were anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my non-existent shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Can you imagine a bramble producing something powerful enough to consume one cedar tree, much less a cedar forest? And yet, it turns out that's exactly what's going to happen between this city and their new king. Uh, Beginning in verse 16, Jotham then goes on to interpret this fable for his audience, much as Jesus gives a parable and then the interpretation of the parable. Um, And in that interpretation, that last statement of the bramble becomes, in Jotham's mouth, a curse against the people who have just murdered his family. He um, kind of sarcastically sets up a pair of, poss- of, of possible paths, where, ways that this could go here. So number one, if you have acted in good faith and integrity, if you've done right by my father Gideon, who fought for you and risked his life for you and delivered you from the hand of Midian, and so if, big if, if you were acting with integrity and faithfulness when you killed his sons. Well, and good for you. I hope you all live happily ever after. But if not, 
And, of course, that's where the truth really lies, right? If not, it's a big not. Then let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo. And let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech too. And so we're going to see that actually happen when we come back to this chapter in a few weeks. Jotham's curse becomes reality. Abimelech and Shechem consume one another in civil war. Verse 57 is going to end the chapter by saying, And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jeroboam. Some of you, I know, because we've talked about it, are familiar with the Bob Dylan song, Gotta Serve Somebody. Give you a little snippet. You may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You might like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed. You're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord. But you're going to have to serve somebody. And the rest of the stanzas, if you call that, describe all different kinds of other people, different walks of life. But it keeps coming back to that same refrain, all of them to a person. You're going to have to serve somebody. And as as we reflect on this first part of Abimelech's history, I guess there may be a few different lessons we could take away, but I want to focus tonight on one, and that is this. When you reject the authority of God, you will always end up with the tyranny of something else. When you reject the authority of God, you always end up under the, under the tyranny of something else. Why is that? Well, it's because you're going to have to serve somebody. That's part of what it means to be a creature. Only God has no authority above him, right? That's part of what it means to be God. We are built to live for something that transcends ourselves. That's part of what it means to be a creature. The problem is that as sinful creatures, we have a natural tendency to pick lousy masters. Terrible tyrannical masters who will enslave us when we're left to ourselves to pick our own. And that can certainly be true in political contexts. History bears that out, including in this story of Abimelech. I think as we think of this passage in light of all of Scripture, that there's perhaps a broader principle here we could draw out. Romans chapter 1, Paul talks about how even though God has shown us plainly in creation, all kinds of things about himself through the way he made the world and so on. People have natural tendency to reject that revelation of God. They exchange, Paul says, the truth about God for a lie. And what do they do? They go and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. And what happens next there in that Romans 1 
description. Well, when people reject God, he gives them up, it says, to their sinful desires. He turns them over to the worst aspects of themselves. So what ends up happening is that we we really implode. We self-destruct. I'm talking about apart from Jesus, apart from the grace of God in Christ. This is what people naturally do. We implode inward on ourselves as God turns us over to our sinful desires. See, Abimelech and Shechem are going to end up destroying each other, imploding in civil war. And that's really the pattern for anyone who rejects the kingship of God over their lives in whole or in part. And again, I want to invite you to think about this more broadly than just political relationships with human authority figures. Um, 2 Peter 2 says this, whatever overcomes a person, whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. Whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. And he writes about people in that chapter speaking loud boasts of folly who entice others by sensual passions of the flesh, They promise them freedom, he says, but they themselves are the slaves of corruption. See, as as sinful people, we are always wandering off into bramble patches, getting ourselves entangled in things that are promising to us freedom, promising to us happiness, promising to us security, pleasure, and all the other things that we crave. What do they end up doing in the end? They end up just enslaving us, catching us tight so we can't get free. And if we don't escape through repentance, then those things end up devouring us. We want to tell the people of Shechem here, how gullible can you be? Don't you see that you are just pawns in the hand of this ambitious killer who only really cares about himself and his own power? But if only we could see ourselves with that kind of clarity and call temptation what it really is when it promises to us happiness, but really it's trying to pull us back into the clutches of tyranny, a tyranny of sin. Romans six sixteen, Paul says, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. In other words, you're going to have to serve somebody. And the question is, will it be the Lord? Or will it be the bramble patch of your own sinful desires you've substituted for his rule in your life? As, as we close, I want you to notice here a very great difference between the kind of relationship the people of Shechem had with their king, and the kind of relationship that the Lord Jesus promises to have with his people who are walking in repentance, who are submitting to his authority, embracing his kingship over them. Think about how Abimelech's kingship began. It began with sacrificing lots of other people's lives so that he could consolidate his power And think about how it ended. It ended with that fire coming out of the bramble and consuming the trees who looked up to him for leadership and safety. 
this highlight so clearly for us, I think, how different it is with our King Jesus. When Jesus came, he did not establish his kingship by sacrificing other people to get himself in power. He established it by sacrificing himself. Sacrificing himself for people who really deserved for fire to come out from him and consume them. So he was the king and judge of all. We stood before him condemned. But instead of that fire coming out from Christ and consuming us, what did Jesus do? He took the full force of that consuming fire upon himself on the cross. The whole trajectory, the whole shape of the life and ministry of Jesus is exactly the opposite of Abimelech's. Could not be two more different kings. What I want to remind you of tonight, then, is that true freedom for you comes not by throwing off the authority of Jesus, by breaking away from the, what you suppose are the shackles, maybe, of his law, the things you feel maybe are restricting you from doing what you would rather be able to do. No, it's actually whoever practices sin, Jesus says in John 8.34, who is a slave. It's whoever practices sin who is a slave to sin. But, Jesus says, if the Son sets you free, then what? Then you will be free indeed. That's where true freedom is found. The law of Jesus is the law of liberty, real freedom. That's what you find when you're serving him. To him puts it, in service which thy will appoints, there are no bonds for me. My secret heart is taught the truth that makes thy children free. And here it is. A life of self-renouncing love is one of liberty. And that's how having Jesus as your king will be a very different experience and have a very different outcome than what people in this chapter experienced with Abimelech. We'll wrap up his story early in the new year. But for now, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for a book of Judges. Lord, if we were putting the Bible together ourselves, think the kinds of things that we would have wanted to include. What a gloomy, gloomy chapter. And yet, Lord, we're so thankful for the warning that it gives to us of our tendency to choose slavery and tyranny over the true freedom that's found in you. We're so thankful for the rich contrast that shows us to, to present to us so much more, uh, ever more clearly the goodness and graciousness and kindness, compassion and self-sacrificing love of our Lord Jesus who gave himself for us so we could experience not the consuming fire of your wrath, but your love and fellowship and communion with you forever and ever through him. We pray you would send us forth from here this night confident in your love and resolved 
to submit to your kingship over us, knowing that that is the path to true liberation. Because you are the God who gives us true freedom. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.